This evening, we're going to be speaking about rebirth, and it's a very central topic in Buddhist studies. In fact, we find that most topics in the Buddhist presentation assume rebirth. If we think about the precious human life, it's precious because we could possibly have other types of lives, other types of rebirth. So it only becomes something precious and something that we want to have in relation to rebirth. Right? We could have been reborn as something else. So that means that there is rebirth. And in terms of meditation on death, if absolutely nothing followed after death, there would be no point in really worrying about death. But because something follows after death, then we have death meditation in Buddhism. Then in terms of what are we aiming for in this uh, initial scope of motivation in Lamrim, it's for having precious human rebirth in future lives as well. And in order to ensure that we have fortunate rebirths in lifetime after lifetime, then we need to work with karma. And karma, of course, uh, absolutely requires rebirth because when we act in a certain way, the results of it normally don't come about in this lifetime. In other words, we have somebody who meditates and does all sorts of positive things all their lifetime, and they end up being tortured to death in a Chinese communist prison camp. Or somebody is a a terrible, corrupt official, and they never get caught. So if we think in terms of karma only in one lifetime, it doesn't make any sense. So the whole idea of karma requires rebirth. And when we think in terms of the intermediate level of motivation, we're thinking in terms of gaining liberation from samsara. What does that mean? That means liberation from uncontrollably recurring rebirth. It's not talking about one lifetime. It's talking about liberation from rebirth. And when we go to the advanced scope of motivation, how do we develop love and compassion and so on by recognizing that everybody has been our Mother, very, very kind to us in past lives. That understanding is dependent on understanding rebirth. And if we're only thinking in terms of this lifetime, we often tend to just identify with our own life form, our gender, our nationality, our age group. And it becomes very difficult to relate to everybody else. And if we think in terms of rebirth, then we've been every age, every life form, both genders, and so on. So it becomes much easier to relate and develop love and compassion for everyone. And without the understanding of rebirth, then this makes it very difficult for us to really understand voidness, particularly, specifically, I should say, voidness of cause and effect. When we speak about rebirth, we speak about beginningless an endless continuity of the mind uh-huh. and that follows cause and effect. And so if a cause exists all by itself, encapsulated in plastic, without itself having a previous cause, then how could it produce an effect? So if we think in terms of this lifetime coming from, you know, no causes in terms of succession and ending with nothing, in other words, starting from nothing and ending with nothing, then how do we account for that first moment in terms of it acting as a cause for the second moment? Let's be a little bit more clear with that point. If the first moment 
It's just there by itself, first moment of our life without a cause. Then it's existing all by itself. It can't produce a second moment. There's no need to go into a detailed analysis of voidness of cause and effect here. I just want to point out that the understanding of rebirth is important for understanding voidness as well. Without rebirth, we really jeopardize our whole understanding of cause and effect and the voidness of cause and effect. Therefore, because rebirth is such a central issue with so many different points in Buddhism, then we can conclude that it is a very important thing to understand. And when I make the distinction between Dharma light and the real thing Dharma, like Coca-Cola light and the real thing Coca-Cola, what I'm referring to is Dharma light is Buddhism without rebirth. The real thing is with rebirth. Dharma light just becomes be a nice person, don't hurt anybody, and try to overcome your psychological problems by using methods suggested by Buddhism. That's Dharma light. Very nice, helpful, but not the real thing. Okay, so let's try to understand rebirth. And we do that with the acknowledgement that understanding it is difficult. Buddhism is a very sophisticated system, as we all perhaps know, and so the idea of rebirth is also very sophisticated. We're not talking about something simplistic, like a solid soul flying out with wings from one body into another. We also need to recognize that Buddha taught Buddhism in India, and almost all the Indian systems with only one exception, all of them accept rebirth. And so, the question here that Buddha was addressing was, how do we understand rebirth? What is it that takes rebirth? In other words, discussing an issue within rebirth, which of course is accepted that rebirth exists. For us Westerners, for many of us, that is not the case. We don't already have a belief in rebirth, and we just need to get a more correct understanding of how it works. Although many Western religions do teach about an afterlife, so it's not completely alien when we talk about rebirth, because if we accept an afterlife, that is some sort of concept of rebirth, even if the only possibilities are in heaven or hell. So we need to then investigate this phenomenon of rebirth, and the main issue here to understand is the issue of continuities. And when we talk about a continuity, we're talking about a succession of moments of something. And, of course, then the discussion becomes, do we have a succession of moments of something which always remains the same, or do we have a succession of moments of something that is constantly changing? So we're talking here in Buddhism about a succession of moments of something that's changing from moment to moment. It's not that each moment is the same. It's not a succession of the same moment. It's a succession of different moments, one after the other. If we can use an image, we're not talking about a succession in the way in which, for instance, a piece of luggage moves along a conveyor belt in the airport, in which... The luggage stays the same, it's just going from one place to another, or in our 
example here from one moment to the next moment. This is not the type of succession that we're talking about in Buddhism with rebirth. We're talking instead about a type of succession like a movie. It's a continuity of moments. And each moment in the movie is a different moment, a different scene. Just as a movie, although it is a succession of moments, we can talk about the movie as a whole. The movie is changing moment to moment. And that movie is an individual movie. It doesn't change it to another movie. So, likewise, when we talk about rebirth, we can talk about a succession of something in which each moment is different. Take a moment to digest that, please. Okay, so basically, when we're talking about rebirth, to make it very simple, we're talking about a movie, an individual movie for each one of us, that is going on and on and on from one lifetime to another lifetime. Like Superman 1, Superman 2, Superman 3, <laughs> Son of Superman, and so on. So the movie goes on forever. We say in Buddhism, no beginning, no end. Ends individual, that's quite important. What is a movie? A movie is a succession of scenes. So if we think in terms of our lifetime, what is our lifetime? A lifetime is a succession of moments of experience, of things, of the world, of life. Well, we have been having quite a lot of discussion lately in our meetings here about what makes up each moment of our experience. And we discovered that it was what's known as the five aggregates. In other words, what we experience from moment to moment can be classified according to five categories of items, each of which changes from moment to moment. So we have a continuity of Five aggregates, moment to moment, they're always changing. And we also saw in our discussion of voidness that on the basis of those ever-changing aggregate factors, we can impute me, the conventional me. Just like on a succession of scenes in the movie, we can impute on it that this is the movie Gone with the Wind, or this is the movie Star Wars, the whole thing. Star Wars are gone with the wind, is how we are going to refer to the whole thing, the whole succession. So likewise, how are we going to refer to the whole succession of moments of experience in my life? We're going to refer to it as me. So that's what we're talking about here, a succession of moments made up of five aggregates on which we can impute the conventional me. So I continue from moment to moment on the basis of moments of experience that are changing all the time. I have to be a little bit careful here. It's not that we're imputing a concept of me. I'm not just a concept. We're imputing the conventional me, computing it with a word, me. Just think of it in terms of my example of the movie Gone with the Wind, which is imputed onto the succession of scenes, just as a way to put it all together and refer to the whole thing. Now, the various schools of philosophical tenets within Buddhism are going to differ as to what is the basis for that me that's continuing from moment to moment. You see, we need something that's going to be present in every single moment in order to speak in terms of rebirth, a succession with no beginning and no end. So we need something that's always there, changing from moment to moment, on which we can impute me. It's like saying, what are we going to impute gone with the wind? Are we going to impute it on a succession of pieces of film? Are we going to impute it on a succession of pieces of 
or an actual movie that you see, what are we going to impute it on? So there's going to be a difference of opinion here. We're going to impute it on a, a succession of digital information on a DVD. What is the basis for saying this is the movie Gone with the Wind? Oh, I just borrowed Gone with the Wind from the store. Well, what is it? What's the basis for it? So the Vaibhashika school, for those of you who are studying these systems, say that it is the continuity of the five aggregates that provides the succession. Other schools say, well, if you look at it a little bit more closely, you'd have to say actually it's the mental consciousness that uh, goes on and on from moment to moment, what we in the West would call mind. That would be the Sautrantika and Svatantrika opinion. Or, to be more specific, the Galupa interpretation of Svatantrika. Chittamatra school says that it actually is this Alia Vinyana. It's a Sanskrit word for a foundation consciousness that carries the tendencies and habits of karma. You see, this is the big issue. What carries the tendencies and habits of karma into future lives? Oh, on the basis of the aggregates, or on the basis of mental consciousness, or the basis of this foundation consciousness, we can say me and that whole package with the karmic habits and tendencies goes on from moment to moment, lifetime to lifetime. That's what we're talking about, the rebirth with the conventional me imputed on any of these. Galukpa Prasangaka says, well, actually, it's just the mere conventional me that provides the continuity from lifetime to lifetime because there are many different situations in which certain bases or other bases are present or not present and gets into the whole prasangika view of voidness. Is there something on the side of the basis that's findable? And in Tantra, the highest class of Tantra, we would say it's the clear light, subtlest mind as the basis for me. It's going on from lifetime to lifetime. So there are many, many different opinions here. Now, at this point, we might be quite confused and not really following what I'm explaining, and that's okay, because the point here is not to understand what I'm saying in terms of each of these individual positions. The point that we can learn from this is that the issue of rebirth is not a simple issue in Buddhism, and there isn't one answer and one explanation in Buddhism of it. That means that, hey, this is difficult to understand, and we have to investigate it very deeply. That's the conclusion from this complicated explanation I just gave. We have to... So this means that we don't trivialize rebirth, and we give it a great deal of respect in the Buddhist teachings, that this is something that is really going to require a lot of investigation over a very long time. And if we come to one understanding of it, don't be satisfied with that because there can be deeper and deeper understandings of it as is illustrated by these various Buddhist systems that all understand it slightly differently. But all of them are agreeing that basically what we have here is a succession of moments of something that's changing all the time. And that the succession of moments of something which is changing all the time is a succession of moments of me and the basis for me. And whether we speak about it in terms of the basis being what makes up our experience or the mind that's experiencing it, that can be discussed. Okay? So let's digest that for a moment. Now, it starts to become very interesting. 
when we look at what is a continuity. Often we hear the word mind stream. A mind stream is changing from moment to moment, isn't it? Now, what comes to our mind when we think of a stream? Okay, you have water, which is moving. Now, we can look at that from the point of view of one little piece of water, a drop of water. When we talk about a stream, we can say, well, that drop of water is now at the beginning of the stream, then it is moving further down the stream, further down the stream, and eventually it gets to the ocean. Is that what we're talking about when we're talking about a mind stream? No, it's not that. It's not that there is some mind, like a drop of water, which is moving down the stream from its beginning to its end. Think about that. Buddhism, we're not talking about a mind that is basically not changing, saying the same thing that's just moving through time and experiencing different things, like a drop of water changing its position, moving down the stream. So, what do we mean by a mind stream that's changing all the time? Well, we can look at it from another point of view. If we're standing on the shore and looking at the water that passes by, we can say in each moment there's a different drop of water passing by. Is that what we mean? Is that an accurate analogy for the mind stream? Or is there something wrong with that analogy? So, think about that. See, I'm making these exercises very purposely because the whole process of trying to understand rebirth requires thinking about it. Okay, so check out this analogy with a different drop of water going by in the same position in the stream. Okay, is there anything wrong with that analogy? And if so, what? That there is an observer that does not change. There's an observer that doesn't change. Okay, that's one point that uh, is wrong with the analogy. Yeah. What else? That there's a me separate from the whole process of life and experience that is observing one scene after the next. What else is wrong here? Karma would not be observed there. Karma wouldn't be observed there. Well, in a sense, there is a succession of drops that are passing by, and it is an orderly succession because one drop is further upstream than another drop, and they're following in an order. It's not that one drop is going to run ahead of another drop. It's going to follow in a succession. So that's not the problem. Yes? It's all the time the same drop. It's the same thing that has the same internal characteristics that don't change. That is correct. But we have to qualify what you're saying, make that a little bit more clear. In our example of the stream, a drop of water is 100 meters upstream, and then it's 50 meters upstream, and then it's 20 meters upstream, and then, then there it is in front of us. And now it's happening, it's a, the drop in front of us, and then it's going further downstream. Well, life isn't like that. It isn't that tomorrow is existing somewhere upstream, like a drop that's already there and moving closer and closer to us, and now we experience it, and then it goes downstream. That's the other thing that's wrong with the analogy. So we don't have a succession of moments, all of which are already existing. So when we talk about a mind stream, we have to be quite careful what we understand by a stream. What if we are not outside observing, 
but we are inside the river. Okay, so what if we're not outside the river, but we're inside the river? Where are we inside the river? Is there a me that is floating downstream, like our drop of water? No. Is there a me that's changing in terms of there's a me of tomorrow and there's a me of the day after tomorrow, and that's getting closer and closer, and every day there's a different me, and then it becomes the me of yesterday. It's the same problem with the drops of water. It's not like that. So <laughs> the I can be imputed on top of every drop of water, but there isn't an I there. In simple language, we can refer to each drop of water. We can refer to each experience as me. But there isn't a findable me on the side of each drop, on the side of each experience. Each drop of the Rio Grande River is a drop of the Rio Grande River. But you can't say that each drop is a different Rio Grande River, even though the drops are different. Think about that. That's rather profound, by the way. What makes it the River Rio Grande? It's the same question as what makes this mental continuum me. Okay. What makes it the Rio Grande River? Is there anything in each drop of water, a little stamp that says, this is Rio Grande water? No. No, there isn't. So it's just a convention that people have agreed upon. That's the name. It could have been called by quite a different name by the Native Americans who lived along that river. I'm sure it was. So, the river is what the name refers to. When we talk about the river, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about what it is we're giving a name to, what the name refers to, on the basis of drops of water that are changing all the time. But, when we talk about me, well, who am I? I'm, well, what the name me refers to. It could be me, it could be I, it could be in any language, it could be a name, it doesn't matter. It's a convention. My parents agreed upon the convention that for this particular period in my mental continuum, the name Alex is going to refer to me. In another lifetime, other people might decide on a different convention to call me something else. I'm not the name, what the name refers to. When we get married and change our names, is it still me? It's still me. On the basis of ever-changing moments of experience. Now, I'm not just one experience that's moving down through time, although we might identify with one period of our life of being young and healthy, and we still think of that's me, even oh. when we're old. Is it me a succession of experiences that are all waiting off stage in a line, waiting to come in and play on the stage and go off to the other side of the stage, like the drops in the river? No. And it certainly isn't a me that's sitting in the audience and watching these experiences like something on the stage. So it's just one experience after another experience, changing from moment to moment, whether we refer to it in terms of the content of the experience, it's the five aggregates, or referring to it only in terms of the mind that's experiencing it, or the combination of the two. And on the basis of this changing moment to moment experiences, there's me. And we saw with our discussion of voidness, just to sum up what we said, but without going into in detail, that me, we can use to refer to these ever-changing experiences. It's not a me that is some sort of static soul that's not changing at all, that's not affected by anything, 
that's heartless, like some little spark of life that can fly out of the body and mind and fly into another one. Because it's separately from them. It's not that. A me that just flies into this body and then sits in the driver's seat and inhabits this body and controls it and uses it to move around. It's certainly not that. And it's not a me that we saw can be known on its own, separate from a basis. Although we often think like that, as we pointed out with the example of, I want you to love me, not my body, not my mind, not my possessions, but just me, as if there was a me that could be loved on its own, or a me that has some defining characteristics on its own side that makes me me, findable by its own power. We each have our own barcode, something like that. Regardless of the DNA in each lifetime, there's some basic barcode that makes me me. It's certainly not that. Now, this starts to become not very easy. I shouldn't say starts. It's continuing to become not very easy. Let me just illustrate what we're talking about here a little bit with uh, an easier-to-understand example. Think of the body in this lifetime. How does it have continuity? Every cell of the body is replaced very frequently in the course of our life. Not one cell remains the same. Maybe one or two. I don't know. I'm not a a doctor, but I think it was that every three months, every cell of our skin is replaced. So there's nothing staying the same. And throughout our life, food is coming in and waste is coming out. Nothing is staying the same. And oxygen is coming in and carbon dioxide is going out. So that's a bit weird because actually there is a continuity of this body, isn't there? How is there a continuity if there's nothing that stays the same? How does it maintain its individuality and its continuity? And in each moment, we can say, it's my body, it's not your body. This is the type of issue that we're talking about here. Think about that in terms of the body. Not just on the gross level of the body when I was a baby and the body as an adult and the body as an old person, even day to day changes. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, that there's a continuity of a body? Quite amazing. These are things that we analyze. We have to try to figure out what makes this continuity. Because it's on the basis of that continuity of the body that I say me, don't we? It's the same thing in terms of continuity of mind. Now, we get to the heart of the matter. Continuity of the body... I mean, from Buddhism, just to give the easy answer, continuity is maintained by cause and effect. You put in certain food, certain energy, certain oxygen, produces certain cells, blah, blah, blah. Cause and effect. On the basis of the DNA from the parents and so on, although each cell that has the DNA is changing from moment to moment and being replaced. The DNA is made up of molecules, molecules made up of atoms and so on. So we get down to protons and neutrons and quarks, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, with the body, the material is coming from sources external to the stream of continuity itself, to the continuum itself. In other words, the material is coming from the parents, it's coming from food, it's coming from air, it's coming from water, it's being fed by things external to itself. I mean, that's pretty amazing in itself, isn't it? Think about that, because that really is quite amazing. And of course, the cells are multiplying and the cells are producing each other, so there is something coming from within the continuity, but it's being fed by external sources. But the original material, the sperm and egg, comes from somebody else. 
from our parents. Now, the question is, is it the same with the mind? Well, this becomes quite interesting. The sperm and egg, which is the basic material, is being fed by external things like water and food and so on. That came from somebody else. But what about mind? Individual subjective experiencing of something. That's what we mean by mind in very simple language. Well, you can say that each experience is fed by contents that are coming from outside, like uh, seeing the sunrise, the sunset, and things like that. So the content is being fed from outside. We're experiencing something. We're seeing something. We're hearing something, etc. But what about the basic substance? Is it coming from somebody else, like in the case of a body? For example, is my happiness a continuity that came from my parents' happiness? Just like my body is a continuity of the sperm and egg of my parents? Think about that. That's a very essential question. Well, is it? Is my happiness or my unhappiness a continuity of my parents' happiness or unhappiness? No, you can't say that it is. Not in the same way as my body is the continuity of a sperm and egg of my parents. So, where does happiness and unhappiness come from? It's not coming from somebody else's. Happiness and unhappiness. My happiness and unhappiness we're talking about. Is it coming from, first there are some elements, some atoms of sperm and egg, and then all of a sudden there's happiness? How can (coughs) elements, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, these things, be the cause of happiness? That's pretty weird. How can it turn into happiness? Continuities continue as the same category of phenomenon. The tree turns into wood, the wood turns into a chair, the chair turns into firewood, that turns into fire and ashes and so on. So it's basically material. And happiness turns into unhappiness, and that can turn into boredom, and that can turn into sleep, and so on. It stays in the same category of an experience. But can atoms of matter turn into happiness? Can a table change and turn into happiness like the table can change into firewood? No. So, if happiness can't come from parents' happiness, somebody else's happiness, and if it can't come from matter, where does it come from? Remember, at the beginning, we talked about the voidness of cause and effect. If happiness just existed by itself in a plastic bubble, there it was, a moment of happiness, then it couldn't produce a next moment, could it? And it wouldn't have a previous moment because it was just there. Well, that becomes strange. If it has a next moment, it has to have a previous moment. So by that logic, you have beginningless rebirth, beginningless and endless mind. Because when you're a Buddha, that's no longer rebirth, but there's still a continuity of mind. So think about that. If there is a next moment, there has to be a previous moment, and that previous moment of happiness or unhappiness has to be a previous moment of happiness or unhappiness. And it's not somebody else's happiness or unhappiness, so it has to be my happiness or unhappiness. In other words, we have to call that previous moment by the name me, just as we're calling the present moment by the name me, we can't call it by the name you. Think about that. We're, we're talking about the first moment of the mind in a particular life. That's another question when that occurs, but let's not get into that.
After a few moments of thinking about it, we're certainly not going to understand it. This requires a great deal of thought. But what we conclude from this discussion is that we have a continuity that forms a basis for imputing me, and that me isn't some solid entity that's flying in and out of bodies and inhabiting them and staying the same, and which can be known on its own and has something on its own side that makes it me and not you. Findable, stamped. Well, what's providing that basis? We think just in terms of the body, well, as we saw, the body in each lifetime is the basic substance is coming from somebody else's body, and it's constantly being replenished by food and air and water and all these things coming from outside. And there's nothing staying the same in each moment in the body. So you can't really say that there's an everlasting continuity of this type of gross body. Because in each lifetime, it's, it's really coming from different sources. That's caused by karma, by the way, what type of body we have. But the mind, the basic continuity of how we experience things, happy, unhappy, if we just want to make it very simple, that is not coming from external sources. That's coming from its own continuity. So make it very simple, a continuity of up and down, happiness and unhappiness, which is, after all, what characterizes our samsaric existence that has continuity, individual, no beginning, and it's going to go on forever. It's not going to be up and down happiness once we gain liberation, but mind will continue. And the up and down of happy, unhappy, that's going to come from karma, depending on what we do. And the body that will form the basis of that will change from lifetime to lifetime and change even within one lifetime. And on the basis of that, there's me. On the basis of a changing body and a changing mind, the mind comes from its own continuity, the body comes from continuities of others. On the basis of that, then there's me. Like Gone with the Wind, on the basis of the various things that that have continuity. Take a moment to try to digest that, although that is a very, very large mouthful. Okay, we have... Happy, unhappy, happy, unhappy, going up and down, up and down. That's a beginningless continuity, and the body that will support it will be replaced all the time, different lifetimes, put it very simply. Okay, we can say on the basis of that, me, and I continue from lifetime to lifetime. Now, our understanding of the voidness of the self becomes essential. The basis that provides rebirth, that's difficult enough to understand, but how about the me? Because we think of me in this lifetime and then me in my next lifetime. Well, what are we carrying with us? What is that me? Our tendency is to want to identify with this lifetime and then say, me of this lifetime, Alex, is now reborn as Fifi the dog. Like in some Hollywood movie, we wake up in a dog's body and we say, oh, what am I doing here? Oh my goodness, I've been reborn as a dog, but it's me, Alex. The human being reborn in a dog is not like that at all. We're not any of the moments of the continuity. I mean, that's the point. We tend to identify with some moment of that continuity and say, that's the real me, and that's what's going to reincarnate. Well, it's certainly not that. The basis is changing moment to moment. Remember that. So is it the same me in this lifetime and in the next lifetime? And in the past lifetime? No. Is it somebody else? 
No. So now we have to really understand what it means to be the same and what it means to be different. Is it the same me who was a baby and the me who's an adult? Is it? Relatively, it is within a continuity, but it's not identical. And it's not that the five-year-old Alex is now experiencing being 60. So it's not Alex the human experiencing being Fifi the dog. Same thing. There are habits and tendencies which can be imputed from moment to moment, like the me can be imputed from moment to moment. And depending on the various conditions and circumstances and so on, different ones are activated. We experience this or that. Same thing with memories. But we don't always experience the same habits and tendencies and memories ripening every moment, do we? Some tend to repeat during our life, but some of the things that we did as a child, we don't do anymore. And different things ripen at different times of our life. Yeah, we've built up tendencies and habits, a karmic point of view with no beginning. So, in each lifetime, the cluster that will ripen will be different. So we can be very different in one lifetime to another lifetime, depending on, of course, cause and effect, but it's still a succession of me. So this is not easy. It's not easy. Because when we tend to think, may I have a precious human rebirth? We tend to think of me, Alex, may I have a precious human rebirth. So Alex in another precious human rebirth with everything that I have now coming with me and being activated in the next life. And it's not like that. That's not very easy to work with. Because we would like it to be the same me, but identical me. Solid, as if there were a solid me that will go into my next life and have a precious human rebirth. So it's not a solid me in my next life who's going to be the same solid me as this lifetime, or a solid me in the next life that's going to be a different solid me from the solid me in this lifetime, because there's no such thing as a solid me. And even if we look at tulkus, these reincarnate lamas among the Tibetans, I have the great fortune to have known very, very closely my own main teacher in two lifetimes. I know him very well in his last lifetime. I know him very, very well in this lifetime. He's, he'll be 22 in a couple of weeks. Now, is that the same person? Well, it's a continuity. There are many things that are similar, but not identical. So what we see repeating in this case are the strongest habits the strongest tendencies, like, for instance, uh, he was the debate partner in his last lifetime of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. In this lifetime, he absolutely adores and loves debating. In last lifetime, he had very close connection with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, with various other people, with me. And in this lifetime, he also has those strong connections and was able to meet these various people very quickly, very easily. So, we have to remember the principle here. If you benefit or harm another person strongly, with a very strong motivation, that's going to build a karmic connection that will continue in future lifetimes if you just pass them in the street. Well, sure, you pass them in the street, but that's not building up a strong karmic connection. So, if we really want to build up strong, positive connections with various people over many lifetimes then we need to try to benefit them with very, very strong motivation. Help them. 
and build up very beneficial habits with meditation, for example, but with a strong motivation. Strong motivation is very essential here. If we build up meditating with a strong positive motivation, okay, that tendency is going to be really strong, so there's a greater chance it'll be activated in the next lifetime. But if we spend all our life working in an office, which we hate and we have no motivation to be there, that doesn't necessarily build up the cause to work in an office again in our next (laughs) lifetime. So, in building up a habit, motivation, first of all, it has to be a positive one. We don't want to build up a negative one, but it needs to be a positive one with a really strong positive motivation. And don't worry about, is that person in the next lifetime identical to me or different from me? Because if we're thinking in terms of a solid me, it's neither of those. It's just a succession. And as I say, that really is not very easy to understand and to accept. That's why we have to really understand what we mean by continuity and succession. Let me end with just a personal note of how I regarded and how I continue to regard the experience of my teacher in two lifetimes, which has helped me very much in understanding rebirth. I'm a great fan of Star Trek, a television show, and the two lifetimes that I've known Serpent Rinpoche in are like two different crews from two different shows, the original Star Trek and then Next Generation. So Captain Kirk and then Captain Picard. I don't know the names because I don't know Star Trek. Uh, deprived, isn't he? <laughs> of the high culture of our time. Almost. So, each time in the two shows, we have a different crew, we have a different ship. Different ship, but the ship is the Enterprise. Now, I've gone on world tours with the old Circumrimpache and his attendants, and the new Circumrimpache and his attendants, who are different people. I've been fortunate to be a member of both crews and translate for them. And there's a succession, there are many similarities, but there's nothing identical at all. So that's helped me very much to understand that rebirth is sort of like that. At its best. <laughs> when you have a really positive mission for your Star Trek, and they continue that mission. So, <laughs> that's a little bit about rebirth. And what I wanted to do with this introduction was to get you to start thinking about it. I know some parts of what I've explained have been difficult, but I did that purposely to try to get you into this whole thing of when we come across a difficult topic in Buddhism, you don't skip over it and you don't trivialize it and not be afraid of it either. But just try to pick up the pieces about it, understand what's involved in trying to understand it, and then work with it. But, as I mentioned in the very beginning of this lecture, understanding of rebirth is so central to just so many topics in Buddhism that it's not an issue that we can ignore. And the deeper and more accurate we understand rebirth, the more profound our understanding will be of all the other topics in Lam Rim. And as we get older and older, for many of us, this issue of rebirth becomes more and more relevant as we face our next rebirth. Of course, you could die very young as well, but as you get older, the reality of one's mortality becomes more evident. So what are the main points we have to try to figure out? We have to figure out what is a succession, what's a continuity, how does my body have continuity, and what about continuity of mind? 
and how does cause and effect work here? And what is the conventional me in relation to a body and a mind? These are the main pieces that we need to understand, to put together to understand rebirth. Okay? So, it's rather late. Maybe we have time for one or two questions. Okay, so she has learned that uh, 16 weeks into the pregnancy, the baby, the fetus, is complete in all his sensory system. And that at that point, he starts to have sensory experiences and he begins to form a consciousness of himself. So what would the uh, Buddhist point of view say to that? Buddhism has its own explanation of the development of the fetus, and it also divides the various stages into periods at this number of weeks. First, you have to have the division into eye cells and ear cells and nose cells and these type of things. Only on the basis of that can you then have that supporting different types of consciousness and so on. So there's a whole series of developmental stages and I must confess that I don't remember the specific week in which each of these things manifest. But you have something similar in, in Buddhism, quite a detailed description of the development of the fetus and the development of the mental faculties. Any other question? So he wants to ask the relationship between uh, uh, karma and astrology. So is it karma that determines that in any particular life, I will be reborn until under such and such uh, arrangements of constellations, for example? Or is it the other way around that the astrological setup is more important in causing me the experiences I have in any particular life? This is a very interesting question and uh, uh, rather a complex one. What you have to look at is if we have beginningless karmic tendencies and habits. What causes one particular cluster of it to ripen at this moment and another one to ripen at another moment? This is the issue. Now, if we look at the description in the 12 links of dependent arising, what causes karma to ripen is two factors. One is, as we're experiencing happiness going up and down, happy, unhappy, the craving to not be separated from happiness and the craving to be separated from unhappiness. That's the first thing. Remember, from the five aggregates, we're always experiencing some level of happiness or unhappiness in each moment, and it's going up and down. So happiness we're craving don't end, and the unhappiness we're craving end. And in addition, we have what is called an obtainer attitude. That's a whole possibility of several attitudes, to put it very simply, identifying a solid me with what's going on now. Oh, I'm suffering. Oh, I have to get out of that. This is going to activate karmic habits and tendencies. Okay, so which ones is it going to activate? Well, that's going to be influenced by what's going on now, the circumstances that we're in, the people that we're in, the weather. I mean, whatever is going on now. Obviously, it has to fit in to what's going on now. On a personal level, what's happening now on a personal level, what's happening on a social level, and physical level with our body, the people that we're with, etc., and what's happening with them, and ripening with their karma now. But you'd also have to say that it has to fit in harmoniously with 
the general situation of the universe as reflected in an astrological pattern. Now, it's not that the planets are causing what's happening to us or we're causing the planets. But if we think of the time of death and what is going to be the general pattern of the next rebirth, then there may be thousands and millions of different possible clusters of karma that could ripen for a next lifetime. Well, a lot is influenced, of course, by our last moment, what we're thinking in the last moment, and the general habits of our lifetime and so on. But it also has to fit into a particular astrological configuration in a certain place at a certain time. And obviously, if you know astrology, that changes very much every moment in every place. And of course, there has to be the karmic connection with the parents. So many, many things have to come together here. Astrology doesn't explain everything, but it's going to reflect, in a sense, the particular karma that ripens at that time. If you're familiar with Chinese philosophy and the I Ching, the Book of Changes, then I think the explanation of the principle there is much more appropriate that the astrological configuration and the karma are synchronous with each other. In other words, they're harmonious. They reflect each other. It's not that one causes the other. They reflect each other. They fit with each other. They have to fit with each other. So let's end here with a dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive force have come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for reaching enlightenment for the benefit of all.